0: Hope has been writing, speaking, and leading workshops and retreats in the bereavement field for more than 25 years. She was 17 when she lost her mother to breast cancer and 40 when her father died, events that inspired her to offer grief education and support to those who cannot otherwise receive it. Her first book, Motherless Daughters, was a number one New York Times bestseller and appeared on multiple bestseller lists worldwide. Her work has been translated into 14 languages and published in 11 countries. Hope is the author of seven additional nonfiction books, including Motherless Mothers and the memoir, The Possibility of Everything. She was the recipient of the 2020 Community Educator Award from the Association for Death Education and Counseling, and has won a Pushcart Prize for her creative nonfiction. In addition to writing and speaking, she's a certified Martha Beck Life Coach and also leads nonfiction workshops to help writers tell, revisit, and revise their stories of loss. Hope lives and works in Los Angeles and Iowa City.
1: Hi, Hope, and welcome to As I Live and Grieve, where we tell the truth about how hard this really is. I cannot find adequate words to tell you how touched we are to have you here, truly. So thank you so very much for joining us today. Before we get started on our main topic, would you take a moment And let our listeners know how you came to find grief as a topic to write on. Sure. And uh, thank you for having me.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. I was 17 years old when my mother died of breast cancer. She had been um, struggling with it for about a year and a half, a little bit less than a year and a half at that point. And um, I was looking for a book about how girls cope with the death of their moms and couldn't find one. And um, about 10 years later, I was in a graduate writing program in nonfiction, and I was not writing about my mother's death, but it started leaking through in an essay that I was writing about, of all topics, Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) And and that essay started turning into a story of the year after my mother died. And I had a wonderful instructor, Mary Swander, who's now the Poet Laureate of Iowa. This was at the University of Iowa who had also lost her mom when she was young and she said you know what forget about the assignment just keep writing you do. this is this is really important work keep writing and that essay blossomed into the story of that year after my mother died and the boyfriend that i connected with who i thought was helping me through it and um and then it's like the floodgates open and i started writing about grief at that time but There still wasn't a book for women who'd lost their mothers when they were young. And so that's when I became determined to write it myself. And that was back in the early 1990s. And I've been writing on and off about grief ever since.
1: That's interesting. And I'm a writer as well. Um, And I remember one of my favorite quotes is when somebody says, How do you know what to write about? You just say, You write about the book you want to find on the shelf, but can never find. Right. Right. And that's
2: that's what the Aftergrief, my newest book, is, too. There was no book that I could find. That tracked people over twenty or thirty years to yeah. show how grief might still be showing up in their life over that long arc. Yeah. Because even though my mother died almost forty years ago and my father sixteen years ago, um, they're still very much a presence in my life, and there are times when I still painfully miss them. Sure. And I wanted to reassure others that this doesn't mean that we got grieving wrong. Yeah. If we're still feeling that way decades yeah. later.
1: Yeah, that was also a, a recent realization of mine that. Grief stays with you for the rest of your life. So thank you for that. Hope, your work and especially your latest book, The After Grief,
0: Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss, came to our attention a few months ago when we attended a virtual event uh, hosted by our local PBS channel. And it involved the documentary entitled Speaking Grief, which is amazing. If anyone out there hasn't seen it yet, please look it up. And then there was a discussion afterwards and we don't know if it was like on, in the chat or something, but somebody mentioned your book. And uh, my mom and I were just starting to think about this podcast. So we made sure to write it down <laughs> um, and then check things out afterwards. So it was great to find out about you. But to begin our discussion today, would you, how would you define after grief?
2: Well, I think anyone who's had a profound loss knows that after the really acute, intense phase of sorrow, that period where we can't sleep normally, can't eat normally, you know, we're just in such emotional pain, we are confused, maybe we have brain fog. Eventually we start phasing into a new, let's call it an area of existence where we can laugh again, where joy returns, where we still, of course, hold on to our loving memories of those who've died, but it doesn't feel all-consuming. And, um, the grief softened, the hard edges soften still with us, but we're carrying it differently. Mm -hmm. I think of that as the transition from the acute phase of grief into what I call the after grief, because I've been doing this work for more than 25 years, mostly with women who've lost their mothers, but now with anyone who has a loss in the past. And I'm a firm believer that there are really only two stages of grief that people care about. There's the one where you feel really bad. And then there's the one where you, where, you, where you feel better. And we didn't have a name for what comes next. We just assume that it's acceptance or resolution, right? Or moving on without any real vocabulary for describing what happens in that period. And I couldn't find a word for it. I even looked in other languages because sometimes mm-hmm. that's helpful. Couldn't find a word for what comes after grief. That's still contains reminders and painful moments, but also, you know, real moments of joy and connection as well. And I remember driving from my house at the top of a canyon down to Pacific Coast Highway. I live in Los Angeles one day and really giving this concentrated thought, thinking what comes after grief? What is, what can we call that part that comes after grief? And by the time I got down to the ocean, I thought, I guess we're just going to call it the after grief. Because there is no, I, I can't find another term. I have since then, only much recent, more recently, discovered a community that, that is called after loss. But um, I'm really looking at grief theory and um, the physiological aspects of grief, the psychological, the emotional, the social, the spiritual, all of that. And so um, the after grief, I think, is the part of grieving that begins when the acute phase starts dissipating. And then for most of us, it lasts for the rest of our lives. If it was a really close and important relationship, sure, we're going to carry the memory of that person's life and their death with us forever. But I work with my clients to help them remember the life and not let the death overshadow the life that was lived. Especially traumatic deaths tend to take on so much prominence in the story of loss. And um, we work to also allow the story of the life and the story of the relationship to have equal or even more weight.
1: I really like that. It it makes it clear. Thanks. Um, And I like having a word to describe it. Mm -hmm. I think you hit it on the nail when you said the after grief is the period that starts when that intense, that real nasty, uh, oh, just. You can hardly get up and move in the morning, but you know, you have to. Maybe you have children or you have a job and you have to continue. But then eventually I think after grief is perfectly appropriate. Now, the basic premise of our podcast is that we will likely grieve for the remainder of our lives. The intensity and manner of that grief may change, but nonetheless, it will remain with us forever. You use the word arc. To describe this. And that was a little curious to me. Mm-hmm. An arc to me is a, a curved section.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I wondered why you feel that the after grief is an arc?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. Well, you know, I come from a narrative background. I was a journalist to begin with, a magazine journalist. And then I, be- I studied nonfiction writing. And then I began to teach writing. And the arc comes from both narrative structure in my writing mm-hmm. workshops, right. and also from narrative therapy, which I have studied mm-hmm. as well, um, it's a story arc, you know, where okay. uh, a story builds and reaches its crescendo, and then levels out a bit. And I wow. use the narrative arc in a lot of my um, exercises with at re- grief retreats and with grief clients. This idea that um, our because there is a, a, a propulsive element in an arc. You know, it's moving toward right. something, right? And our lives are composed of many different arcs. You know, I can tell the arc of my own evolution as a writer. I can tell the story arc of um, being a mother. I can tell the story arc of being a New Yorker who moves to California and settles here. There's many, many story arcs. But I really work closely with people examining the stories of loss that they are carrying forward into the world. Because sometimes those stories are really empowering and sometimes they are weakening and sometimes they need some updating or revision as our perspective shifts. Because one thing that I discovered when I was writing The Aftergrief, and it's equally as true for me, because I was looking at people whose losses were 20, 30, 40 years in the past and looking at how their stories of loss changed and really examining how my story changed as well, which I can go into in more detail if you'd like. But what I discovered was that the facts of a loss are pretty immutable. My mother will always have died in 1981 of breast cancer when I was 17 and she was 42. But my relationship to those facts and what they mean to me has changed quite a bit over the years. When I was 17, I thought, oh, my mom is old. She was 42. She's already been to college. She got married. She had children, <laughs> all these things that seemed to be in my distant future. You know." And I thought, oh, she, you know, she's lived most of her life already. That was my opinion for a while. Um, my story was also that I was unique and not in a good way because I had lost a mom when I was young and I didn't know any other girls who did Right. My story changed a lot when um, I wrote Motherless Daughters and met all these other women who were so similar to me. It changed again when I became a mother, saw the world through the eyes of a mother, changed a lot when I turned and passed 42 and realized how young she was. So um, I work with people very closely examining the stories of loss that they're telling themselves and challenging them sometimes to create alternate but equally true narratives As their perspective shifts, as it does, as we age and we gain more experience and Mm -hmm. insight, and so that's where the concept of an arc comes from, very much from narrative structure and narrative therapy.
1: Okay, that's good, and and again, makes perfect sense. I am about two thirds of the way through your book, and it's actually it's right on the shelf behind me. Our listeners can't see it, but it's there, and I'm enjoying it tremendously so far. Chapter eight has been my favorite. Uh And you have titled that chapter, "Chapter People, We Need to Talk and Write and Paint and Perform. Now, I would like to entice people to go buy your book because I think for them it will be a life-changing read if they're in grief or have been. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit about that chapter, but don't give the whole thing away because I want them to buy it. Okay, um, that chapter is about
2: how important it is to release our grief through self expression. Now, for a lot of us, that's going to be telling our stories, but that's a very feminine model of grief. You know, a lot of men aren't comfortable talking about it or showing their emotions, so they will grieve often through action and problem solving. So you can dance, you can paint, you can write. I mean, I have people in my writing workshops all the time who are coming to write their way through grief, and they're a terrific. Um, online writing workshops around loss, uh, particularly Megan Devine's um, Refuge mm-hmm. in Grief, her Write Your Grief program. I believe that we, I'm a believer in the research that shows that when we're holding in those emotions, that it does affect our mental health and our physical health. There's quite a body of research around that. You know, there's Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. There's James Pennebaker's work on expressive writing. And that that's um, at the heart of chapter eight, as you might remember, Kathy. Yep. Yes, I do. James Pennebaker's work where he did studies on college students at the University in Texas that have been replicated on, in many other sites since. But he asked people to write for 15 minutes at a time about the most traumatic experience in their lives. And then he followed up to see, I think they, it was maybe four or five days, 15 minutes, very small, you know, periods of time. But um, he followed up with them afterwards to see what the outcome was, and he discovered that the students who had written about their traumatic experiences versus the ones in the control group who wrote about something neutral—the students who had written about what had really, you know, affected them deeply, emotional experiences—were visiting the student health center less. They were coming to thank him for the opportunity to engage with those feelings and thoughts, and what he discovered over time was that it was the integration of thoughts and feelings in their writings, which is what he called expressive writing, that actually led to improved mental and physical health in his subjects. Now, there have been other studies that have not proved it quite as strongly, but others that, that have. And I'll tell you, I've been teaching nonfiction writing for more than 25 years, and I've seen what look like miracles happen in the classroom when people open up and really... Not just write about what happened, but how they think and feel about what happened. So I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of expressive writing, and Chapter Eight talks a lot about that.
1: Yeah, I I just love it, and I think and I think the words that caught me initially: "People, we need to talk." Because again, that's kind of how this podcast came to be. We want people to talk about it more. And as I recall, I kept thinking, "Well, why is it so different? Why is it so different?" And I remember reading that way back generations ago, after someone died, the family would drape the doorway, drape the house, they'd wear black. So everyone in the community knew that they were grieving. We don't have anything now to let people know, you know, treat me treat me delicately, I'm grieving. And so somehow it's just kind of become a closeted subject that no one talks about. And we really want to bring that to the forefront. So uh, dance, paint, perform, write poetry, whatever. I agree completely.
2: Absolutely. And um, speaking grief is about that. It's about the, the, that documentary, which is, right. Excellent. You're, you're right. It's yes. excellent, um, is, is very much about that. There's also great work coming out of the BBC about mm-hmm. the videos about talking about grief. But you're absolutely correct, Kathy. I mean, about 100 years ago, mm-hmm. mourning behavior. In Western, the Western world right. radically changed. Sure, think about all of the Victorian mourning rituals; they were yeah. very elaborate. Mourners had a special status in society. Right, you're co- you're correct. The way they decorated the house, their social rules, the way they—mostly women—the way they dressed, but you could tell who was in high mourning, meaning exactly. the loss reason, and who was in low mourning, yeah. meaning they were coming out of the mourning period. There were specifically prescribed mourning periods in terms of length, depending on who had died, you know, from like six weeks for a cousin all the Mm -hmm. way up to two years for a spouse or child. And that changed all in the 19 teens. There were a series of historical events. And for the past hundred years, we have been separated from many of those rituals. The only one that we, or one of the few that we see now is, you know, when a team loses a member, they wear a black armband, like the baseball players will do that. That that harkens back to the Victorian era, where the men would wear suits with black armbands to show that they were in mourning, but the women would be head-to-toe in black.
1: Right. And the policemen will put a black ribbon around their badge.
2: You know, there are certain um, cultures, religions, ethnicities that do have some, you know, rituals that that for their communities because right. grief is very culturally relative. I come from a Jewish background, and when my mother died, I was given a black ribbon and a pin to wear um, on the outside of my clothing so that people would know that I was a mourner. But, you know, of course, not everyone knew what that meant, not everyone in my community. And I was 17, and it I thought it marked me, you know, in a way that I didn't want to draw attention to myself. So I actually wore it in, I wanted to wear it in honor of my mother, but I put it inside my clothing, like attached mm-hmm. to my bra strap yeah. so nobody could see it, but I knew it was there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting.
0: Hope, if you could say just one thing to an audience of people who have yet to experience grief after the death of a loved one, what would you say? Are these people going to be
2: experiencing a loss or are they going to be helping someone else through a loss? Because I have two different answers for that.
0: Well, let's do both. <laughs> okay.
2: You have not yet experienced profound grief. Self-compassion and kindness for whatever you feel is, is absolutely essential. Uh, your grief is going to be as unique as your thumbprint. You don't have to follow any kind of prescription. Mm-hmm. I like to say that there, um, there's, there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to grief. There isn't even a one-size-fits-two. The way that you respond is going to depend on a number of factors, including your personality, who died, your relationship with them, how they died. If it's in the family you're, and you're a, a, one of the, the children or a sibling, the birth order also might matter. There's a number of factors. So your grief won't, probably won't look like anyone else's in your family's. Your gender is a big determinant too. So just know that whatever you're feeling is whatever you're feeling. And, but it is important to allow yourself to feel it if you can. Now, some people just, they don't have the space or the time to allow themselves to grieve. They may have to kick into survival mode for various reasons. Maybe they can't take any time off of a demanding job, or they have children that they need to care for. And so then they're going to shelve their grief for a while and they'll, it'll be postponed. And i th- I expect that we're going to see that this spring among a number of people who lost loved ones to covid Yes. Yeah, yes. especially at the beginning of the pandemic when mm-hmm. things were so chaotic and people were dying alone and we didn't know what was happening or how long this was going to last we um a lot of people were just in survival mode and you know then trying to keep other family members safe and desperately, you know, and we were all at home and and so their grief may be delayed or postponed, and it would not be unusual for that one year anniversary to come up and to have a big grief reaction at that time when we realize what the, the, you know, the the finality of what happened and, and, or when it's re-triggered by a certain time of year or flowers Mm -hmm. back in bloom or reminders, you know, that, that, that might happen. So, um, be prepared for those things to happen if, you know, in, in a cyclical nature, as you move through, you know, your own grief process, if you know someone else, who has lost a loved one. Saying anything is better than saying nothing. Right. Put their comfort before your discomfort if you can. Even saying, I don't know what to say. I wish I knew what to say that would make this better for you. Just know that I'm thinking of you and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in solidarity with you. I'm holding some mm-hmm. space for you to have your feelings. It's really asking someone, let me know what I can do for you. Is generous, but not always particularly helpful. The gre- those who are grieving mourners don't always know what they need. Right. I think you just just keep checking in with them. Right. And remember that after those first few weeks, the phone calls are going to start coming. Mm-hmm. Check in with them months later. Yeah. How are you doing? I imagine you're still thinking about this. Check in with them, you know, at the six month or one year right. point. Yeah. You know, just let them know that you're there at, at different periods because it will keep coming up for them. And there will be fewer and fewer people who have the understanding or the patience to talk to them about it at that time.
0: Right. And from the other perspective, then what one thing would you say to our grieving listeners? I think the same thing that I would say to those who have not yet
2: grieved, but um, wherever you are is where you are, you know, find the people who will meet you there, you know, build the team. um, I'm going through a divorce right now, which is a different kind of grief and Mm -hmm. going through it during a pandemic. So anyone who's grieving now is does not have the kind of access to their social networks right. that they normally have. And it is really hard to grieve in isolation. Um, and it is really important, even more so now, to reach out for those connections because we're not naturally interacting with people in the course of a day who might mm-hmm. say, how are you? Hey, do you want to sit down and have a coffee? We really have to be proactive about, about maintaining our social connections right now. So, um, you know, figure out who your team is, I have found that this, I, this, uh, this old saying that you know, floats around in the culture, you, you learn who your friends are when, when crisis strikes, is a, is a bit reductive. Uh, I would never say that about my friends right now. But I, I have learned which of my friends can't, uh, are strong enough to just hold the space and keep their, their lives and their marriages or their right. you know, griefs separate from mine yeah. and, and really be there you know, as a support. And, and who can't? For reasons of their own, no blame. You know, I just won't call those people, right. or you know, interact with them right now. When I, when I need support, I'll interact with them for other reasons. But really, think about who's on your team, you know, and and let them know. Hey, I really appreciate you being on my team here, and can you just check in with me periodically? Can is it okay? You know, um, if I'm calling you, you know, at low points, I've got a team of about five or six friends who are have really, really helped me through this past year. You only need two or three. I feel you know, an abundance of gratitude that I have five or six. And, um, and, and, and don't be afraid to lean on them. I mean, what I often find is that people wanna be there for you. We often feel like, oh, I don't wanna burden people with my pain. Mm-hmm. But what my friends have been saying to me, especially during this pandemic year is no, it's taking my mind off my troubles. <laughs> yes. I feel good that I can help someone else. Yes. <laughs> everything's so chaotic here. I don't know how to help myself, but I actually feel
0: competent helping you. Please let me do it. Right. Right. So we understand that grief is going to last the rest of our lives. Can you share how it might change from a year or so after an event to 20, 30, or even 40 years after? Well, I mean, what happens is that the, what we call grief, or what
2: I and others in, in the field and Colin Murray Parks, a British um, psychiatrist, brilliant bereavement writer, calls grief spikes, will still occur, but they will, um, they'll get really stretched out, right? We won't be having it every morning when we wake up and remember that the loved one isn't there. Right. Um, they tend to happen on certain occasions. One is, um, called Sneak Attacks in the book, which uh, I love. My friend Rebecca Sofer at Modern Loss gave lent me that term, sneak attacks, where you're just driving down the road and a song comes on the radio that reminds yeah. you of your loved one. Or in my case, it would be when I walked in it past a department store perfume counter and caught a whiff of Chanel Number no. 5, yeah. my mother's perfume. Or you see someone out in public wearing a t-shirt that your brother used to wear, and it, oh, it's, you know, it's that gut punch, and you, you just feel very raw and tender for a little while, and then it passes. That's one way that grief can show up or in the after grief. Um, another way is um, on a cyclical event, like the holiday that your loved one really enjoyed the birthday, their birthday, mm-hmm. the anniversary of their death at the dot We are putting up templates of ceremonies to memorialize the anniversary of a loved one's death and also a rite of passage, which I'll talk about in a moment, because there are no culturally sanctioned ways to acknowledge these days. And a group of motherless daughters volunteered their time and worked with a new company called Be Ceremonial that helps people create rituals around certain life events. And we've created um, a boilerplate template that can be personalized. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to give people some guidance around um, how to create a ritual that might be meaningful to you, If you're feeling a way to acknowledge that day, particularly an anniversary that seems to hold a lot of weight, like, like the first anniversary of a death or the 10th or the 25th, you know, we have all, we have rituals for these weddings, right? You know, you get, you get paper on the first anniversary, you get silver, you get gold, but we don't have anything like that for the anniversary of a death. We also encourage people to celebrate the life on that day, Mm -hmm. not just remember how someone died. Right. Because on the anniversary of a death, we're often remembering what happened on that day 20 years ago. But let's remember what happened you know, in the 55 years before that day mm-hmm. as well and honor that and think about how we want to carry that forward into the next year. Right. So cyclical events like that. And then um, it will come up almost guaranteed at times of major life transitions when you wish that person had been there, when you want them for advice. Those are graduations, getting your first job, becoming a parent. But the big one, and the one that we've also created the template for, is reaching and passing a loved one's age at time of death. Mm-hmm. That will happen if it's an older sibling, um, certainly if it's a parent, especially a same-sex parent. It's a very big deal in the, the bereaved child community to reach and pass the age your parent was either when they were diagnosed with a terminal illness or when they died. And so we've created a ceremony around that, honoring the past, the present, and the future, and stepping into this phase of life that your parent didn't get to experience. It's a profound rite of passage for for these sons and daughters.
1: I hope you coined after grief because there was really no term for it, and it expresses it beautifully. Is there a term that describes that period of time when a child passes the age? That's such a good question. I've been looking for one. There, um, I saw in a
2: Psychology Today article, someone called it a fan you know, based on that: I have seen that one. I've seen that. I, I, that doesn't quite work for me. I call it crossing the silent threshold
1: because okay. it's a
2: threshold that we have often, you know, we're thinking about, not always talking about. Right. And, but it is a, you know, it's a rite of passage. Um, I think of those years that come after as kind of gift years, mm-hmm. or bonus years, because right. so many of us have been afraid we'll die at the same age, even if there's no right. evidence whatsoever that that will happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and for those whose parents were quite young when they died, like in their 20s and 30s, I've met a number of individuals who will put off making large life decisions right. until they know they're going to survive that age. So then right. they feel like it's a whole new lease on life, you know? Mm-hmm. But there's, um, you know, I was talking about this the other day. I did a, a live event uh, on this subject last Sunday. And we were talking about what it feels like on the other side, because there is this like this sense of expansiveness and exhilaration, like, yes, I made it, you know, like Rocky Balboa on <laughs> right? the top of the steps. But there's also this feeling like, oh, I'm so sad. My parent was so young. And mm-hmm. how come I'm getting these years? And they didn't. And right. it's not really a survivor's guilt. I don't no. think. I think it's more like a thriver's guilt. Yeah you know, the sense that I'm going to have these years and I know, and, and I'm going to make the most of them. And I'm so sad that they didn't get to, but then there's often sort of a renewed commitment to saying, well, I'm going to really make these years worth it in their honor. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to live a life that they would have wanted for me. And sometimes that can be, you know, very empowering.
1: Yeah. Crossing the silent threshold probably describes it, but I expect at some point you'll come up with a one-word term for it, and (laughs) maybe maybe there's another book in your future (laughs) to discuss it. (laughs) It appears our time is drawing to a close, but before we wrap up, Hope, I want to offer you some time to just talk to the listeners about your website, your books, not just this one, but I know Motherless Daughters is an extremely popular book, Mm -hmm. and anything else you might want to share with our listeners.
2: Well, I would love to let them know about a new initiative that's starting in Absolutely. February and March. Um, Motherless Daughters Community Calls are starting. They're going to oh. be every Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. East Coast time. You'll always get a recorded link if you can't make the session. There'll be four calls a month and it's only $49 a month. And um, I'm going to be walking people through coaching exercises. We will be choosing topics that are of interest to the group. We're going to have guest speakers. I'm already lining up the guest speakers. We will occasionally like watch a video and then talk about it. It's going to be very eclectic, but it's a way for women who have often felt very alone with their loss to be in a community of other women who really understand. And also because it's online, It's worldwide. We have women all over the world. So if you have a very unusual or unique story and have never met anyone whose story Mm -hmm. is similar to yours, you have a much wider opportunity to meet other women who maybe were shaped by some of the same
0: Mm -hmm. events. Right.
2: So we're really looking forward to that. It's an hour long call. And then there's an optional 30 minutes where the women stay on the line, just have an open conversation and get to meet each other. That's facilitated conversation. Yeah. It's a really unique format. And we're so excited to be launching it. We will welcome new members at the top of every month. So they're Mm -hmm. coming in February 1st, March 1st, April 1st, a new group. And, and it's a three month subscription, which you can renew if you like it. Yeah. Brand new program. And we're so excited to be launching this because it is, um, you know, very close to my heart. And, and we know that when women are in community like this, it alleviates a lot of the loneliness or the stress of feeling like nobody understands me because they're suddenly on a call with 60 or 80 or 100 women who really get them.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting. I hope you are so creative and so generous uh, with your time. And people just can't fully understand, I don't think, what it takes to get that involved, as involved as you are in helping other people. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for doing that. I can think of a lot of people that could benefit from joining your motherless daughter's group, or just reading your book, your book may very well become a gift at some point to oh some of my friends. So thank you so much. I want our listeners to know, too, that in the episode note, there will be information about Hope's website, how to contact her by email, if she accepts that, or whether you use the website contact form. On our website, that information will also be posted there as well as links to purchase her books. And uh, other than that, I think we almost have to say so long for today. So Uh, thanks again to our listeners. I hope you tune in next week.
0: Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes please email us at info at com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.